So yes, I get to talk about dating this morning, which is uh, an interesting, hey Joel, <laughs> interesting topic. And I, I uh, for probably about a year and a half, I've been doing sermons on and off called uh, Cross's Culture, which is all about the way in which Christianity and culture are very different from each other, but a lot of the time Christianity adopts parts of culture without realising it. And I actually think that this is, in my opinion, um, I think that this is the most pressing issue in my mind for the church today. Now, I know that probably Nathan and Peter disagree, but I'm talking about my opinion here. I'm sure lots of people would disagree, but it is the number one issue that I talk to young people about, 100%. In fact, if I was to extend dating, (coughs) not just to be talking about dating, to be be talking about issues of sexuality in general, it's virtually all I talk about. Every time I talk to a person who's kind of under 22 and they've got some kind of pastoral care issue, this is what I'm talking about. Well, nine times out of ten anyway. A lot. And I actually think that, in my opinion, this is the most important, most destructive and most ignored and excused issue that we face as a church. (coughs) So, that, in my opinion, is why we should discuss dating. In my experience as a teacher and someone who goes out of their way to spend time with young people, dating is all they want to talk about. They really want to talk about sex and love and going out with people. And they talk to each other about it all the time. All the time around the schoolyard. Okay? The problem is, I think, we actually don't talk about dating that much. In the church and probably in your family and stuff, we might talk about sex a little, not too much because it gets a bit awkward, But we might talk about it enough and we could simply say, don't do it, and then we leave it at that. But I think that we need to talk about dating. Because for Christians, I think that's where the real danger lies. Most of the time, hopefully, Christian young people, or Christians of any age, aren't going to be going around, sleeping around with randoms in a casual way. Most of the time, people are going to fall in this area within the area of dating. Because they've been dating someone for a while and then things progress. That's why I think dating is so important to talk about. Before everybody tunes out, (coughs) because there's like this group of people here that might be interested in dating and everybody else is like, done that, I've got it sorted, it's fine, I don't need to worry about it. This is actually really important for everyone. Okay? Because you might be thinking that it doesn't apply to you. (coughs) You might be thinking that because you're married, you don't need to hear it. If you're thinking, I'm married and I've got no kids, or I've got young kids and so I don't have to worry about this for a while, the truth is that you're wrong. You need to start thinking about this now, and you probably need to start having conversations with people now, okay? You're wrong not just because if you start, if you're thinking about your your kids, um, you might think, okay, well, it's okay. If I'm thinking about my kids in this issue, then that's okay. At least I'm doing the right thing there. But you have to realise... That's not really community thinking. In this church, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and the people that are going to struggle with this actually need your help. They need the help of the older, wiser people that have been through it. They actually need you to be engaged in this issue and to have a godly, biblical opinion about this issue in order to be able to help them and to talk to them and to give them uh, good advice about the whole issue. The truth is, I generalise because obviously there's smatterings of people throughout, but this group of people here need the help 
of everybody else. You know, Jesus didn't just come to look after his family. He actually came and made the whole world his family and he looked after and loved all of them. And that's what we're called to do as well. And if you're a parent here, this matters to you in a huge way because you don't realise, I guarantee you don't realise how bad things have gotten and what exactly is going on in society. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you've really got your finger on the pulse of culture and nothing I say today will shock you. I hope that that's the case. I really do hope that there's people in here that do understand what's going on in society and culture and that they're not going to be shocked and appalled and realise how naive they are today. But if you do know what's going on, then you really should be on the forefront of trying to do something about it. Because I'm going to be talking about some pretty shocking stuff today. <clears throat> I really think that it's important if you've got young kids um, to start talking to them early. And if you've, if you've got a kid who's maybe 10 or younger and you think, I don't really need to worry about this right now, unfortunately, 10 is possibly too late. Ten is getting on in years when it, when it comes to kids' um, understanding of and exposure to the dating and the sexual world. The average age for a young boy's... Um, the average age for a young boy's exposure to pornography these days is 11. Uh, so if you've got a kid in grade six, it's quite possible that it's actually happened. Oh, what's happened here? We're back. Oh, cool. All right, I'll just go. Yeah, cool. Where am I? Okay, so the truth is that 11, 11 years old is grade 6. Now, you might know some grade 6 or you might have a kid in grade 6 and you might think of that child, rightly so, as, as young and innocent and hopefully not exposed to all sorts of stuff in the world, but the truth is that they very well could be. If the average age is 11... That means, obviously, there's ages above 11, but there's ages below 11 as well. Um, previously, we may have thought that the little dating relationships that primary schoolers have with each other are kind of cute and harmless. But with, if, if kids at age 11 are exposed to porn, then kids at age 11 are exposed to things that can, you can see are going to affect those little harmless dating relationships and could quite easily... Become, become quite dangerous. Um, I'm actually going to read a little excerpt from an article that was in the Telegraph at the start of this year. <clears throat> and this is from England. Uh, I'm not saying that this 100% happens here in Toowoomba or anything like that, but it's, it's a good example of some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, in it, the writer says, <clears throat> My girls are fast approaching 13. The age that Chevenier Kendall Bryan was when she leaned out of one of the windows on the fourth floor of a block of flats on the street. A boy that she knew was down here on the ground, but this was not Romeo and Juliet, far from it. Chevenier had been pressures, uh, pressured into performing a sex act on the boy, and he had shared a phone clip of her doing it with all of his mates. She threatened to jump from the window if he did not delete it, and then she slipped and fell 60 feet to the ground, dying from massive brain injuries. Her mother says that she will now campaign against what is happening to young girls in our society. They are certainly under extreme pressure having to cope with a world that's more brutal, more demanding and far more overtly sexual than anything that their parents knew. Now, her mother's talking about campaigning to discuss what's happening to girls 
Uh, and here at the project, we think that a lot of what is happening to girls is because of what's happening to boys, or perhaps what isn't happening to boys. Perhaps what boys aren't getting that they need to be getting, and therefore they're doing things like this. <coughs> I want to let you know why I care so much about this. Firstly, it's because I've actually been asked to preach about this this morning. I'm preaching about it because some people, some young people in the church have asked me to talk about it. Because as I said, dating's not a topic that's discussed much, either at church or at homes, but believe me, it's discussed all the time at school between kids. And secondly, the reason I want to talk about it is because it's actually an issue that burdens me and my wife a lot. Um, people talk to us about stuff that's going on in their life and they often feel as though they have no escape, they have no way out. And I've seen so many great Christian people of various ages get caught up in this and eventually get destroyed and leave Christ because of it. So I think that we really need to talk about it. We're called to live in the world but not of the world, as I've said previous times in these sermons. We're, we're called to live rather of God. We're called to live a full, complete, joyous life through Jesus. The fallen world, though, it surrounds us and it infects us more than we realise. We often find ourselves living in the world and of the world without realising it. And that's the real problem because when we compromise without realising things, we can be living in a way thinking that we're doing the right thing, encouraging other people to do things, saying that's the right way to do it, and we can be wrong. And I think that this is one area where we're really wrong a lot of the time. I've spoken to people and they've had ideas and they haven't realised how unbiblical, how unchristian their ideas are and how far they've strayed from the truth of what Christ, the ideal that Christ has for them. They just haven't realised that it's happening. So I want to start off by talking about uh, the two main options for dating and that's going to be dating the way that culture expects people to date and dating the way that Christianity expects it to happen. But before we get started, I want to recommend a sermon. I've got really limited time today, unfortunately, so this is a massive issue. I want to recommend a sermon by Mark Driscoll about dating. Um, in it, he actually talks about four main ways to date, and they are prearranged marriage. Amen? Yeah, more of that. Look, you know the stats. You probably know the stats that prearranged marriage has a, a, a much less divorce rate, a much lower divorce rate than, than other marriage. Because prearranged marriage, well, we're going to talk about it in a bit, about some of the reasons that people end up hooking up together, and they're not usually, they're often not great reasons. Whereas prearranged marriage usually means that your parents have sorted out someone who is good for you, and they know much better than you do, kids. You know, my parents know much better for me than I did. Not that they prearranged me and Caitlin as far as I know. I don't know if they did. They might have been working behind the scenes. The second option that Driscoll talks about there is courtship. And courtship is this biblical ideal in which um, a young man sort of approaches a father and a family and talks to them and kind of has to go through them to get to uh, the daughter, right? And it was weird because I was talking to my community group about this. I gave them the, the four options, prearranged marriage, courtship, uh, Christian dating and non-Christian dating. And they all said courtship was the one that they liked the most, going through the parents. And you're like, really? I'm like, and, they, and I said, really? To them. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do for our kids. <laughs> that's not, and I'm like, what about you? No, we wouldn't do that. That's weird. I'm not talking to her dad. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's the way that I'm sure every dad wants their future son-in-law to operate, yeah? But I wonder how many of us actually operated that way. I know that I did not. So anyway, the two other options were 
uh, Christian dating and non-Christian dating. And they're the two that I want to talk about today. Uh, courtship and pre-arranged marriage and stuff like that. It's, pre-arranged marriage definitely is, you know, we don't really need to discuss that too much. But courtship, I think, is a, I would really encourage you to look, at, look into that and to think about that and to have the sort of relationship with your kid in which that would actually be an option. I think that most of the time when people these days say, oh, that doesn't make sense, it's because they just don't have necessarily great relationships with their parents or relationships where they feel as though they could have that. They just don't know because they don't have these sort of discussions which is really what I'm trying to encourage you to have. So let's talk about what culture says about dating, okay? Well, I think the most important thing would be that culture says do it. Culture says you should be dating people. Everybody is dating people. According to culture, if you're not dating people, it pretty much means you're either married or weird. There's your two options, okay? And if you look at all the popular TV shows, particularly comedies and dramas, you'll see that most of them are centred on relationships. The most popular comedies of the last 20 years have centred around dating. Seinfeld, which I think was nine seasons, um, it was a show that they said it was about nothing. But in reality, it was a show around dating. And Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld on the show, um, had at a conservative estimate around 40 sexual partners over nine years of the show going on. Um, you know, and that's one of the most popular, most popular comedies kind of ever, okay? But the good thing about Seinfeld, I guess, in a sense, is that they actually talked about the positives and the negatives of, of sort of casual sex with people. And a lot of the shows and a lot of the comedy was found in talking about some of the real negatives of sleeping around. The same, unfortunately, can't be said for shows that came a bit later, such as Sex and the City and Friends. This was, oh, there's Jerry Seinfeld there, look at him. He's happy with his life. <laughs> this is uh, from um, the American Journal of Pediatrics said of Friends that Friends was cited uh, in the 2008 study as being uh, one of the shows that glamorised sex while hardly mentioning its downsides such as pregnancy and sexual transmitted diseases. On the show, those six friends there had between them around 70 different sexual partners and often these people appeared for one episode and then they were never seen of or heard of again. But times have gotten worse again. Uh, after the end of these programs a new and very popular sitcom has arisen um, which does even less to discuss the issues with promiscuity and that's this man here. Some people know who this guy is. This is Barney Stinson from How I Met Your Mother. Okay, And Barney has an episode dedicated there's an episode of the program dedicated to him celebrating his 200th sexual partner. And he is kind of known, and the comedy is found of this guy, the fact that he sleeps around with multiple people, often in the same episode. And there's a lot of jokes found in the way that he can trick people into sleeping with him. So Seinfeld, Friends, and How I Met Your Mother are all primetime TV shows, which means that they're all on TV. Um, they can be on TV as early as sort of 6, 6.30 in the evening, which is obviously when kids are still up watching TV, and they're all PG, which means acceptable for kids above eight, as long as a, there's a parent that is okay with that fact. So perhaps it's possible that we don't really know what our kids are watching on TV. Uh, you think a PG show is probably not going to be having a whole episode dedicated to someone celebrating their 200 sexual conquest. Now, you might know all, all of this already. Okay? There's a lot of people that are like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know that this is going on. And I'm not here to talk about the evils of television and some of the terrible things that can be in television. But the point is that this is cultural. 
This is the way that pop culture talks about dating. When you date someone, you have sex with them. That, it's as simple as that. So, but it might be helpful to look at a couple of statistics to demonstrate a little more solidly where culture's at when it comes to dating and sexuality. In America, 90% of men and 86% of women who have been ever married had premarital sex. That's pretty high stats. That's well over a majority. In England, <coughs> uh, in 2011, there was a study done by Leeds University um, that found that uh, the number of couples cohabitating with children equaled the number of married couples. So now we're reaching the point in which a one way of living is completely equal to uh, the more traditional old school way of living. And of course, this mentality from America and England is echoed here in Australia as well. These two graphs uh, are from Australian statistical studies. This first graph is uh, people who lived together before they were married from, you can see, the 1960s up until the 2000s. In the 1960s, it was, looks around maybe 4 or 5% of couples lived together before they were married, and now we're up close to 80%. That's a transition that's happened over 40 years, a very brief amount of time. Uh, this next one is births registered to unmarried mothers. Uh, you can see starting down in 1977, it was around 10% and now we're up to around 35%. So these are statistics from Australia and now we can get even closer in and talk about stuff that's going on in Queensland, okay? <coughs> in Queensland, more women, 45% than men, 28% agreed that films were too sexually explicit these days with high proportions of older men and women reporting that films are too sexually explicit. Uh, that's obviously the negative side. So if you look at the positive side, or maybe you could see it as a negative side, that means that, uh, I've got to do some math, 72% of men don't think that films are too sexually explicit. Uh, I, I mean, personally, I would probably disagree with that. More than three-quarters of men, 86%, and uh, women, 82 were accepting of premarital sex. Uh, less than one-quarter of men, 19%, and women, 23%, agreed with the statement that abortion is always wrong. Next one. The majority of men, 61% of men, will have more than six sexual partners in their life. 20% of men will have more than 21 sexual partners in their life. Compare that to 35% of women that will have over six sexual partners and only 4.5% of women that will have over 21 sexual partners. So a big disparity there between men and women. The majority of men will have over six sexual partners in their lifetime. 20% of women have just one partner for life. 47% of women will have only three or less partners, whereas 26% of men will have only three or less partners. Hopefully this paints a bit of a picture <coughs> about cultural dating. Hopefully we can start to see the way that culture is. And my whole aim with what I'm talking about today is to help you to see what culture is doing, what culture is like, and then to discuss the way in which Christ is different to that. Okay? Basically, cultural dating is a tryout system. It hasn't necessarily got that much to do with marriage, although obviously marriage is connected to it. But essentially, dating means that two people are attracted to one another, they kind of fall in love, and most of the time it will mean that they sleep together and may eventually end up living together. These relationships can last for any amount of time, but obviously they can be called off as well. And most people will have a number of these kinds of relationships in their lifetime. So that's cultural dating. Let's take a quick look at what the Bible has to say about dating. Well, the look can be very quick. 
because it doesn't talk about dating in the Bible. It isn't there. If you look for the word dating, you are not going to find it. So I guess the next question is, is there anything in the Bible that resembles what we see in culture these days? And there's not. At least there's not from the perspective of what God wants for people. You could go to Sodom and Gomorrah and see some examples of some stuff that's happening these days. But if you talk about God's ideal, there's not a system that is anything like the system that we have. So probably what we should do is have a look at a couple of verses that discuss male and female relationships in marriage and that might help us to put together a picture of what it's actually supposed to look like. So, just fly through them quickly. Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a, a helper fit for him. Uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Uh, And then Jesus in Matthew says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, uh, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Uh, Second Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And finally, you might ask why this one's here, but I'll explain in a bit. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So let's try to take all of these, what have I got there? Six verses, these six kind of ideas, and try to combine them to get a Christian approach to dating. Firstly, it's obvious that God made men and women to be together. Secondly, he made them to leave their parents and to get married. And thirdly, the ideal that Jesus spoke of was that once people were married, they wouldn't separate. So we have this idea of marriage spoken of fairly clearly. But then we get the second lot of verses, the second three verses, which I think we can use to actually discuss dating a little bit. Firstly, we can see that we're encouraged to flee youthful passions. See, for Paul, he has this idea in his head that there is such a thing as a youthful passion. When people are young, they have certain passions. That's an important thing to realise. He didn't just say flee unrighteous passions or unholy passions. He talked about youthful passions. There's this idea that he's communicating there that sometimes in youth we can be passionate about things which may not be great things to be passionate about. Secondly, we can see that there is such a thing as sexual immorality that exists and that we should flee from it. And finally, we have what I think is an encouragement as to the way that we should treat other people. That verse there in 1 Timothy says, you should kind of, it's, it's saying you should treat people, older men you should treat as your father, younger men you should treat as brothers, older women you should treat as mothers, and younger women you should treat as sisters. And that treating younger women as sisters and treating younger men as brothers... that is actually something that I refer to when I talk to kids about dating all the time. Because because the Bible doesn't have the word dating in it, there's no situation in which that we can see in the Bible there's two people making out that aren't married. That's kind of not in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say legalistically that that should not happen, but I think that Uh, you know, Paul gives us a pretty decent little example there of the way that we should treat people that are similar age to us that are different genders as brothers and sisters. We'll talk about that more in a bit. So, what do we have from all of that? I think it's fair to say that it pretty much contradicts society's idea of dating at every turn. 
Okay, this is the point in which Christ has crossed culture on the idea of dating. But all of that is background knowledge and probably most of it is knowledge that you already knew. So I want to get into the application of the knowledge and this is where I think it's really important. Because you see, if I was to ask you to put your hand up if you disagree with culture's idea of dating, probably, hopefully, most of you would put your hand up. You'd all disagree, all right? Hopefully, if you're a Christian in the room, you already know and believe that premarital sex is not God's intention. But let's look at some more statistics. In an article on online magazine Relevant, it says that 80% of young unmarried Christians have had sex. Two-thirds have been sexually active in the last year, even though, according to a recent Gallup poll, 76% of evangelicals believe that sex outside of marriage is morally wrong. This is an American poll, but as with most things, I think, from my experience, uh, from talking to people and from research that I've done, it's echoed fairly closely here in Australia. And this is the thing that I think is really important to consider. Because most of the time when people talk about this, they talk about sex, but it's not enough. You can't simply say to unmarried people, don't do it. Because we don't define what it is. Most of the time, because it's kind of awkward. If you say to young people, don't have sex, and they say, well, could you just define that exactly what you mean? Not many people want to have that discussion. Fair enough, okay? That's an awkward discussion to have. But, you know, you've sometimes, when it's appropriate, you actually have to push past that awkwardness and have an awkward discussion for the sake of that other person. I've had some very awkward discussions with young men about this sort of stuff, okay? And you can kind of see they weren't really expecting me to go there, but I just go there and I say the things that need to be said. Because when you leave it unsaid, you know that a young person is saying, well, technically, didn't have sex. Technically, it's okay, isn't it? Luckily, though, God knows the kind of people that we are. So we can go back to his word and we can find out exactly what the standard is. See, Jesus doesn't just not want us to have premarital sex. He wants us to flee from sexual immorality. They're two different things. Jesus has made it very clear that the physical act is not the only thing that matters. Matthew 5.28 says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, let's talk specifically about dating. Firstly, as I said, dating doesn't exist in the Bible. In the Bible, from what we can see, people kind of knew each other, they fell in love and then they got married. Pretty much like that. Now, it can happen over time, sure, but there's no great example of the sort of long-term dating, sussing someone out that we see in society these days. We don't really see that in the Bible. Other than prearranged marriage, couples in the Bible did not, you know, other than prearranged marriage, which, you have, which happens in the Bible as well, there's not really any other way that it's done. Certainly couples, biblical couples in the Bible, which, you know, God would want us to be like, did not move in together and sleep together for two years and then get married. They just got married straight away. So, why do we do it differently these days? Is dating even a good idea? Should we just meet someone and realise that we don't fight as much with them as with other people and just say, hey, what do you reckon? Surely there needs to be romance and love and all of that. And yes, there does. But let's start at the start. Here's three points I want to make about it, okay? Number one, dating is about marriage. And what I mean by this is dating should not be a premeditated temporary thing. 
It doesn't make sense to have two people who know that they don't want to spend the rest of their life together pursuing a romantic relationship together. If neither of them has the intention of getting married, what is the point of that relationship? Secondly, the implication that number one has is that it's pointless to date someone if you're not ready to get married. Is that fair enough? This is where it's going to start getting controversial. And this is why, in my opinion, relationships in grade nine don't make sense. If you're in grade nine, you're 14, you don't own a car, most likely. You, have, you, you can get your wife to stand on the stump pegs of your bike, perhaps, and ride around town. But honestly, it doesn't make sense to me, young people, really young people, going out with each other. What's the point of that? And thirdly, there should be no sexual immorality, which means that between two people who are not married, there should be no sexual contact. Now, that last one there is a pretty interesting one because I think that Christians are fairly accepting of sexual contact between unmarried people. I think generally we are. I think perhaps we're, we're more accepting than we should be. I think perhaps when you see two young, in love people making out, you think, oh, isn't that lovely as long as they're not having sex. But biblically, I just wonder whether or not that's actually the standard that we should be thinking about. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in a bit. So, they're the three main points I want to make. Okay, you get them, you get those points sorted out, and you're doing pretty well. But I want to tell you what's, what really happens, what really goes on by talking about some of the discussions that I've had. My big question that I ask young people when they come and talk to me about their relationships is I say, what is the point why are you going out with that person? And to me, that seems like a really obvious question. I think that's a question that we should ask about all sorts of things all the time. Why am I doing this? Check your motivations on stuff. The truth is, we do stuff without thinking all the time. And a lot of the stuff that we do is kind of dumb. We just do it without thinking about it. And so it's helpful to have people around us asking us questions like this, asking us questions like, what is the point of your relationship? And most of the time when I ask this question, people find it fairly difficult to answer. Most likely, they find it difficult to answer because they realise that their answer is, I felt like it. Why are you going out with that person? I felt like it. Now that might make it sound kind of trite, I felt like it. But in reality, that's actually what happens. Okay? Because dating relationships are mostly about feelings. You feel a certain way about someone, your emotions react when they walk in a room and you can't stop thinking about them, you say you like them or maybe you're in love with them and then the next step is that you go out with them because you like being with them. They make the world a happier, brighter, more bearable place and they make you feel good. Is that right, all you young and loved people? <laughs> they make you feel good. So when I ask the question, why are you going out, usually, eventually, people get to that answer. They usually take a while to say it. Because I think that they realise, somewhere deep down in the back of their mind, that it's actually meant to be more than just that. It's meant to be more than just they make me feel good. See, because look in the Bible and tell me where it says that you should go out with someone because of the way they make you feel. It's not there. And yet, it is what everyone does what I did. Hopefully, if you're married, it's what you did. Hopefully, you married someone that you were in love with. That's a helpful thing, right? In fact, my brother, <clears throat> yesterday, he's engaged and we were talking about marriage and stuff, and he asked me this question. 
I can't remember what it was. I think I was being a bit silly. And he asked me, why, why do people get married? And then I answered tongue-in-cheek. I kind of said, look, honestly, it's because they fall in love. Because God knows that's the only way anyone would ever sign up for that. <laughs> I mean, what are you saying? When you sign that document when you get married, what are you saying? I will never eat fish again because you hate fish and I love fish. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I will give you foot massages and I hate feet. I will not sleep because you snore. You need to get in love to make that decision. It doesn't make sense. So God gives us the great gift of feelings and emotions and falling in love to trick us. (laughs) No, it's not a trick. But you see, the feelings are a really good part. The feelings are a bonus. The feelings are brilliant. The emotions are brilliant. But the feelings and the emotions are not the goal. That's not the point of marriage. It's not meant to make you feel good. That's not why you do it. It's a gift that God has given us, but it's not the main point. You know, Lewis describes falling in love as the spark which kickstarts the engine of marriage. It's really important. You need it. But that spark is not the thing that continues it. It it gets it started. So why do we go out with people? Well, because they make us feel good. And I have to tell you that that is a terrible reason to go out with someone. Just because they make you feel good. Because when they stop making you feel good, what are you going to do? You're going to get rid of them. Because they don't make you feel good anymore. So obviously there needs to be something more than just the way that they make you feel. And for that reason, it's a terrible reason to get married to someone because they make you feel good. You should not get married based solely upon your feelings. The truth is that most dating relationships are selfish. You go out with them because they're attractive and they make you feel good. You love them. But hey, you know, you you also love chocolate. And chocolate makes you feel good as well. So is there a difference between your love of chocolate and your love of your girlfriend or your boyfriend? Well, if your love of your boyfriend or your girlfriend is the kind of love that you throw in the towel as soon as it doesn't make you feel good anymore, I don't think there's much of a difference at all. It's a fairly selfish love. And real love is selfless, not selfish. True love is selfless. Christ's main goal is not to make you feel good in your relationship. The feeling good is a bonus that you get in a good relationship. So when I ask this question to uh, students, a lot of the time if they're older, grade 11 or 12 or out of school, or if they've heard me talk about this before, they jump the gun and they think they say the thing that I want them to say. They think they're going to be all mature and grown up and they think, oh, I know, I'm not going to be selfish here. And they tell me that they're going out because we've talked about getting married. And then I say, great, you've gone from being selfish to being stupid. Don't hear me wrong, thinking about marriage, preparing yourself for marriage, making sure that you're growing up into being a marriable person is a great thing, okay? But when you're 15, please don't tell me that you've found the person that you're going to marry and that you've spoken to them about it. Why is it so stupid? I'll tell you why. Because as soon as you say to someone, I'm serious about this relationship, I want you to know that I love you and I respect you and I care for you. I'm not in this relationship to use you. I want you to know that I think we could get married one day. As soon as you do that, you're kind of engaged. I mean, what's, what's engaged? It's two people that have discussed getting married and are planning to get married. 
People these days are engaged for years, decades. So obviously it doesn't have to have a, a set date. Just the idea that the two of you are working together in, towards the direction of getting married is engagement. And that means that I seriously have spoken to kids that are engaged in grade 9 and 10 because they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're doing the godly thing by, by saying this isn't selfish. This is about marriage. This is, about, this is serious. And engagement is freaky because when you're engaged these days, it pretty much means that you're married. We kind of jump everything forward. When you're going out, you're engaged. And when you're engaged, you're married. And when you're married, I don't know, you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) See, the problem is when two 15-year-old Christian virgins want to do the right thing, the God-honoring and responsible thing and talk about marriage, what they're really doing is they're making these tiny, unspoken little oaths to each other. Oaths of ownership. Ownership. They say, I want to marry you. Do you want to marry me? Yeah. Good. In that case, I'm going to get jealous every time you ever speak to any boy ever because I own you. We have something. We made promises. This is scary stuff, particularly for a 15-year-old hormone-filled love-crazed teenager. I tell kids at school, and it might sound harsh, but I say, look, you don't own him. If that guy wants to start dating someone else, he has every right to do that. It's not a sin. It's not a sin to do that. He might sin during the process of doing it. He might do it incorrectly. He might hurt you. Uh, He might be mean. He might not handle it properly. But there's no covenant binding you two together. You have the right and ability, and I would argue the responsibility, to make sure that until you sign the paper and put the ring on the finger, you can get out. And that's an important thing for young people to realise, for anybody to realise, Because if that lovely Christian boy that you've been dating since grade nine has turned into an Xbox-addicted sleaze, then don't marry him. Make him earn it. Make him work for it. You can leave. You You don't owe him anything. You can break up. So what's my point? Basically, I think that it's foolish for people who are not old enough to get married to date. Because dating should really simply be the sort of time in which two people decide whether or not they should get engaged. And I think it shouldn't take that long. Now, a lot of this is my opinion. There's nothing in the Bible that says specifically thou shalt decide whether thou shalt get married over 16 months and then that's it, okay? But I think within a year, you've got a pretty good idea about whether or not that person's going to work well, okay? But there's an interesting part of that, okay? I, I actually dated... Caitlin, my wife, for 18 months before I proposed. And I think that I probably waited a little bit too long. But I had this grand scheme of how I was going to propose to her, so I had to wait a while for that. But honestly, if you're 19 and, uh, and you, you've been going out with someone for a while, and if you're doing your job right, and I think that doing your job right means involving other people and asking older, wiser people's opinion about your relationship and, and asking what they think, if you're doing that, I think you can know within... A relatively short amount of time. Now, there's obviously reasons that that might not be the case, but generally, hopefully. Are there good reasons to put off getting married, such as money or university or addictions and stuff like that? Now, this is something that people talk about. I can't get married. I've got no money. I can't get married. I'm still in university and stuff like that. Look, if you're not willing to get married now, I just think that you should not be willing to date now either. Just make the two work together and you're going to be in a much better place. 
I think that perhaps it's wise to put off getting married until you've got more money or whatever. However, at the same time, I think that you can get married and live in a tent and it's okay. Graham Solomon at school always tells me about how he ma- lived in a tent for the first year of their marriage. Uh, he just loves it. He's very proud of his tent, I guess. But, <laughs> but it's true. You don't need as much as society is telling you that you need. Um, a side note about this idea of being marriable. I think that people who are not ready to get married shouldn't date and that Christian men that are addicted to porn aren't ready to get married and so they shouldn't date. As simple as that. I think that uh, Christian women that have been emotionally hurt and scarred and have to work through a whole bunch of issues probably aren't ready to get married necessarily because it's really important that you don't marry someone hoping that they're going to fix you because they won't. You can't marry someone hoping that they're going to do the work that only Jesus will do. You come to a marriage as a full redeemed person and you meet another full redeemed person and together you work together. Why do I care so much about this? Look, honestly, I care about it because typically after a couple has been dating for over a year, the chances are that they will have been sexually immoral together. They might not have slept together, but it's very likely that will have gone too far. Now, I've got this diagram that I show to my students, okay? It's very difficult to read down the bottom, but it says spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical. I see these as four areas in relationships, and as time progresses these things increase in intensity. If the longer you've been married, the more you know your spouse, okay? One month in, let's say that all four bars are at number two, okay? Now, these four bars, you can see the green one, I've made it obvious, is the physical one. A Christian person tries to do the impossible. A Christian person tries to say, in a year, all of my bars are going to be going up, but I want to keep the physical at two, whatever that is. Okay, And in three years, all of my bars have gone up and I want to keep my physical at two. And it's like this. (laughs) The chair will always fall down on the leg that is the shortest. And this is what happens. People that are going out become extremely connected to each other and they actually try to cheat the way that God has created the world. God has created the world for all of these bars to go up together at the same time. And they try to cheat the system and then they get surprised when they can't. When young people are dating and acting like they're married, chances are they're physically acting like they're married as well because that's the way that we work. That's the way that we're geared. Does that make sense? So, what constitutes going too far? I'm not going to talk about it, it's okay. Listen, I think that we have pretty dodgy standards, generally. I talk to young people and they've got no problem as long as they're not sleeping, actually having sex, they think that probably everything else is okay. Uh, and, you know, if you're looking at, looking at that, that uh, First Timothy idea, if you're looking at that First Timothy idea, this idea that we should be treating everyone who's not our, our wife or our husband as brothers and sisters, if you wouldn't do it with your sister shouldn't do it with your girlfriend. That's what I tell kids, and they laugh at me. They laugh at me. They say, as if I'm not going to make out with my girlfriend. And then I ask them the question, why is it so important to you? Why do you want to make out with your girlfriend? It's selfish. It's just selfish. Honestly, there's 
There's very few reasons, God-honoring reasons, to have a two-hour make-out session on the couch other than the fact that it makes you feel good, which is not what relationships are all about. Now, I'm not one of these people that necessarily is advocating don't kiss and your first kiss should be on the, at the altar, okay? But I tell you what, I'd much prefer that for my kids than the opposite. That might sound weird, but I'd prefer weird to sin. <clears throat> I think that one of the reasons that, um, that we get in trouble with this one of the reasons that we ask this question, why do so many great Christian kids fall into this particular sin? And it's more common than you think. It really is. Way more common than you think. I think it's because we're not trained very well in our temperance or our self-control. I think generally, we don't really place a high value on temperance and self-control anymore. In mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis has a whole... Uh, chapter dedicated to temperance and he says it's kind of the most undervalued virtue and I think it is as well because see we don't think twice about eating the extra donut we might think twice about having the extra drink we do think twice about looking at porn and we think millions of times over and over and over again about having sex but our character was formed way back at the donut our character is formed in all of the little things, the little decisions that we make throughout each day. And if you've got a kid who has no self-control in any area but is a nice enough good Christian kid, you can't expect their self-control to be really powerful and acting well in the most tempting situation that there can be. Our character is formed by all the small decisions that we make in our life. There's no surprise for me that people who have always had everything that they wanted exactly when they wanted it cannot handle waiting to have sex. That just seems to make sense to me. See, what's the, when is the longest that we wait for anything? I used to have to wait all the time for NFL to be on TV, and that was rare and it was at 3 o'clock in the morning. I woke up because, you know, I'm dedicated. But still, <laughs> I had to wait for it. And now I can be at school on a break watching it on my phone live from America. Our consumer-driven culture means that we get everything now and we get used to having everything now, which means that we're not trained at all in the remote bit of self-control. If you can't stop lying, if you can't control yourself with how much TV you watch, how lazy you are, how hard you work, why would you think that sexual sin will be easier to control? Because it's not. It's harder. This idea of self-discipline, it kind of makes us squirm. Self-denial seems pointless and religious and we kind of get scared of religious things. But, you know, the Bible talks about fasting. Do you fast? Do you realize that fasting is good for you? That denying yourself sometimes is a really healthy, good thing? Hedonism is this idea that all people have the right to pursue all pleasure at any time. I think that more of us, myself included, are hedonists than we think. We really are obsessed with pleasure. We really do only do the things that make us feel good. We really do run away from hard things. So I just need to finish up because I'm way over time. But anyway, I want to ask what does sexual sin do to people? Really briefly spend some time on this because honestly, um, this is a pretty huge issue. But I also think that 
the church has a way of making it a bigger issue than it needs to be. It is a sin. It is a sin like other sins. It is not the unpardonable sin. It is not the sin that Jesus' blood has not atoned for. And sometimes when we talk about it in church, we make it seem like this is the worst thing in the world. And Jesus' blood has atoned for it just like anything else. And there is freedom and redemption from this just like anything else. But one of the main ways that this sin is used against people is through guilt. It ruins people with guilt. We think that we're terrible sinners. We doubt that we could possibly be forgiven. We don't confess to other people and ask for help because it's shameful and we need to hide it. And because of this, it also usually draws people away from community and closer to each other, the two people that are sinning together. They're the only two people that know about it. It's their dark secret. And so they can only really feel comfortable with each other. But strangely, it rarely brings them closer together. They actually usually end up fighting more because there's more bitterness and resentment and strange emotions going on in the relationship. But that doesn't actually mean that their sin stops. It usually becomes more regular because of that. This is a pattern that I've observed time and time again. Sexual sin creates pain that lasts and goes against the very fabric of the way that we were created. Marriage is a sacrament. It is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality and it actually becomes real here on earth. It's all about, about self-giving. Just as Christ is about giving himself, marriage and sex is about giving ourselves. And the corruption of that is a really big deal. But it's not the end of the world. Christ has come to bring freedom from it. Freedom and redemption and rejuvenation is not only possible, but it's promised. The old you has been put to death and you can always start afresh. Now, honestly, there's a lot more for me to talk about with this topic, but I'm going to have to conclude. So, to conclude, I'll say this. Culture is obsessed with sex and obsessed with dating. Jesus is not. Jesus is obsessed with holiness, and he wants us to be holy as he is. And he has designed a plan and a system through marriage in which we will have the most joy possible. His ways are the best ways. And yet we often find ourselves wanting promised things now, not being patient, and playing with mud pies when there is a promise of a banquet, if we're just willing to wait. So, to wrap up, I've got a couple points. First of all, get other people involved in your relationship. This might sound weird, okay, but relationships, for me personally, I had the most, uh, I found the most freedom and, and help and growth through the fact that there were other people that were mentoring me through my relationship with Caitlin, and the same was for her. And they were separate. I would go and talk to people about stuff, and she would go and talk to people about stuff, and then we'd come together and discuss that stuff together. Okay? Relationships in which it is two people that are very insular and not willing to discuss stuff, they're not creating a good space for there to be transparency and honesty. Secondly, until you're married, you're not married. Don't treat your, your partner like your spouse. Now, this happens a lot, you know. I know people that have shared bank accounts and buy each other cars and houses together and stuff like that before they're married. It's really difficult. You're kind of assuming that you're married when you're not, and it makes it really difficult to break up. And if God wants you to break up, you better break up. Thirdly, do not awaken love until it pleases. This one is for young people and old people, the parents here as well, okay? Because parents often make this blanket rule... You're not dating until you're out of school. 
or you're not dating until you're 16. It seems like a good thing. Seems like that's a rule. They're my kids. They do what I say. As if they don't do what you say. It's a terrible rule. Okay? You need to talk to your kids about the reason that you've said that because otherwise they're just going to assume that you're an old prude and that you don't really understand the way that the world is. I really hope and pray that when I have kids, I'm going to be able to talk to them and they're actually going to choose not to have relationships until they get out of school. They're going to see the wisdom in that and they're going to want that rather than texting their boyfriend behind my back late at night. (coughs) This is a pretty interesting one. Parents, what's your involvement in your kids' relationships? In the same way that people who are not married should not act as though they're married, parents should not jump the gun and hope that their kids and, you know, and their boyfriends and girlfriends are married and act like they are. Don't get too involved with your daughter's, daughter's boyfriend or girlfriend, or you know, vice versa. As an aside to this, I would actually encourage you to really consider whether or not it's a helpful idea to invite your kid's boyfriend or girlfriend on family holidays together. It's something that is done. I know that it's done. And... <clears throat> I'm not saying that it's a sin or anything like that. I'm just talking about the wisdom of it. You're creating a space in which that person is becoming like a part of the family. And a lot of the time when I talk to people about that, that are going through a breakup situation, one of the things that they say is the hardest is that they don't see the family anymore because they, over a period of years, have become like a part of that family. I think that we need to be careful about that. I think that we need to be careful about the sort of pressures that we're putting on our kids' relationships. If our hopes are different to their hopes, that can get really messy. Sleepovers, generally not a good idea. Most bad things happen at night. And finally, this is where I want to finish, consider reevaluating your idea of a good age to get married. See, the average age for men is 29 and the average age for women is 27 to get married. And I'm not surprised that people are sleeping together when they're waiting until they're 29 to get married. That's a huge part of it. I was 25. Caitlin was 20. Is that correct? Five years different, so I did the maths pretty well just then. (laughs) And 20 is like, that's seven years below what the average is. But I really, I think it would be great if we had a group of young people in this church and if your kids were mature and adult and weren't obsessed with prolonging their adolescence until they were 30 and being able to play Xbox all night and go out drinking with their friends until they're 30 and were actually able to realise that you're 18, you're an adult. You're 18, you can start doing amazing things. You're 18, you can start thinking seriously about getting married. Is it always a good idea for people to get married when they're 18 and 19 and 20? No, obviously not, okay? But... I think that we as a church should be more open to people getting married earlier. So a lot of different points talked about this morning. Uh, Hopefully you found it informative. I find it very informative when I look into it. And please feel free if you ever want to talk to me about this issue, either as a young person or because you've got kids or anything like that, uh, feel free to talk to me about it. Uh, because, like I said at the start, I really genuinely believe that this is an extremely destructive force that's going through culture, and Christianity, particularly the modern evangelical church, has really adopted it wholeheartedly without realising some of the stuff that's come with it. Okay, I'll just pray to finish up. God, thank you that you have provided for us a way that is 
not only <clears throat> good and holy, but actually the best way. And the way that will bring us the most good feelings. And feelings aren't bad, and I thank you for giving us feelings and emotions that are connected to dating. But I pray that uh, we would be on guard always about the way in which society and culture have affected us. And I pray that for everyone in this room, whether or not they, uh, how old they are, if they're in a dating relationship, if they're married, if they're single, if they've got kids, that they would all have a refreshed view on your ideal for dating and for marriage and that we would all together be able to encourage each other and help each other towards holiness. Amen.